This is the Hearts and Minds podcast, conversations about investing and impact. Welcome to the Hearts and Minds podcast. I'm Maggie O'Neill, Head of Marketing and Operations. Thank you for joining us today. Hearts and Minds Investments is a unique ASX-listed investment company which has two objectives, to maximise long-term returns to shareholders while also providing vital financial support to leading medical research institutes. There are so many brilliant individuals that help us by donating their time, their expertise and their intellectual property. In this podcast series, we are bringing you in on meaningful conversations on impact and investing to discover more about the incredible people in the Hearts and Minds ecosystem. Today, it's my pleasure to be joined by Chief Executive Officer, Paul Rayson. Hi, Paul. Hi, Maggie. How are you today? I'm very well again. Excellent. Well, today we're speaking with a very impressive scientist based in Perth out of the Harry Perkins Institute of Medical Research, Associate Professor Gina Ravenscroft. Uh, Paul, it was a really interesting conversation on rare genetic diseases this time. Tell us more. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation with Gina. You know, she is researching in the area of genetics and finding, you know, the genetic cause of rare diseases that really affect babies and children in a severe way. And she's had some success finding the gene responsible and finding, you know, either screening for it or a cure, which is pretty amazing stuff. And her stories around collaboration around the world are really eye-opening. So it was a great conversation. Yeah, that was one of my favourite threads is that international collaboration. Alrighty, let's dive in. Hi, I'm Paul Rayson, your host for this conversation. Today, I'm joined by Associate Professor Gina Ravenscroft. Gina is an Associate Professor in Neurogenetics at the Harry Perkins Institute of Medical Research in Perth. Her research interests are in rare genetic diseases, with a particular focus on neurogenetic diseases in babies and children. Gina and her team have identified more than 20 novel human disease genes in recent years. Gina is recognised as a world leader in fetal akinesia and congenital myopathies. In 2016, she was named Young Myologist of the Year, and in the same year, she was named an Australian Institute of Policy and Science Young Tall Poppy. In 2021, she was named Business News Entrepreneur of the Year and was one of the 40 under 40 recipients. Gina received her PhD in 2009 from the University of Western Australia. In 2011, she was awarded a National Health and Medical Research Council Early Career Fellowship and in 2016, a Career Development Fellow. She currently holds an Emerging Leadership Fellow and is also the Honorary Patricia Kalis Fellow. Gina, welcome. It's great to have you as a guest of Hearts and Minds. Thank you. Um, it's quite a set of achievements in a um, you know relatively short period of time. Your area of specialty is you know is rare diseases and and studying genetics to hopefully you know provide answers for uh, children and families that that suffer from these often severe conditions. I suppose firstly I you know wonder what led you to this. Was there a you know a moment in your childhood or your school or was it just a, a growing curiosity over time? Yes, yeah, so I guess thinking back. I probably had two really key influences. One was my dad who loves and still loves science and maths and I guess at school I was always the kid whose science project, you know, actually worked and every everything had to be bigger than Ben-Hur and mine was the only hot air balloon that, you know, actually flew and had to be retrieved from the neighbouring suburb type thing. <laughs> so I really had a love of, of science from an early age. And then in high school, I grew up in, in Cape Town in South Africa and I had a really influential biology teacher who I'm still friends with who took us out into the field 
and we collected the protea flower heads and then worked out which insects were drawn to which proteas and what type of sugars were in those proteas and whether I, I can't remember the outcome but I remember being really struck by the ability to study the natural world and collect data and understand the world by you know, sort of scientific inquiry and so we were trying to work out whether insects were attracted to the shape of the flower head or whether it was the sugars that were within specific types of protea that attracted the insects. And so from that, I, you know, those two people were really influential in my life and led me to study science. And I also had a really strong interest in medicine and helping people and babies in particular. So the curiosity from a very young age was developed. So that was in South Africa. So what led you over to Perth and then to the Perkins Institute where you are now? Yeah, so I came to Perth when I was 16 and did one year of high school here, which was a really incredibly condensed year of high school. So I missed all of year 11 and half of year 10. And so that was an you know, uh, incredibly stressful time trying to cram study into one year and, and learn a whole new curriculum. And then I went from school to UWA for an undergraduate degree and there I majored in physiology. And physiology is the study of the body and how our systems work. And it was really this intersection of kind of physics and biology that really interested me. And I had some great mentors there in the teaching faculty that again, there were field trips that I went out on, you know, measuring temperature in kangaroos, for example, and, and all sorts of interesting, and ostriches and all sorts of um, kind of field work that really led me to be interested in research. And, and so that then led me to thinking, well, after I finish my degree, what do I want to do next? And I wasn't quite finished with study. And I guess being a researcher, you never are finished with studying. And so that's one of the great things with being in research is that you're always studying and, and discovering new things. And so in my honours year at UWA, I was then looking at where I might want to go and do a PhD and then stumbled across Professor Nigel Lang. And I was really drawn to his work identifying disease genes in patients and families with muscle diseases and also work trying to understand those diseases through study of animal models and cell culture models, for example. And so I then reached out to him and joined him for a PhD. And I think I was really drawn also to the work because I could see how immediately impactful it was for families. Some people can spend 30 years in the lab and not necessarily have an impact on human health whereas we really are providing answers to patients without a genetic diagnosis. They don't know what the disease is, who else in the family might be affected and, and what their prognosis is. And so it's really rewarding to be able to, to help families in that way. Yeah. And Professor Nigel Lang, he, he's well known in the genetics area, but is that rare genetics specifically or is that that's a sort of a subcategory that you wanted to deal with? Yeah, so Nigel has a track record in, in genetics of neuromuscular diseases and one of the, I guess one of the reasons Australia and Perth is a great place to study genetics is people come here and have large families and don't leave and so we have these amazing families that we can use to map the genetics and pinpoint the genetic cause of disease. So well, the very first gene identified for motor neuron disease was discovered here in Perth because a sailor came here in the late 1800s and had three wives and 17 children and he carried a mutation that caused motor neuron disease. Wow. And so there's now over 500 people in that pedigree that we know about. No, I didn't know that about Perth. <laughs> 
I imagine with rare genetic diseases, there's hundreds of them, and I suppose most unknown and incurable. But, but you know, how do we think about rare genetic diseases? Are they categorised? Are they grouped? And you know, what are the high level stats here in Australia? Yeah, so there's over seven thousand different rare diseases. Over eighty percent are thought to be genetic, and collectively they affect one in seventeen individuals. So there's over two million people in Australia affected by a rare disease. They disproportionately affect babies and young children. So a third of individuals with a rare disease won't see their fifth birthday. So there's this huge burden, emotional burden, social burden, health costs associated with these rare diseases, especially in the paediatric population. So there's lots of upside. And, and what are a couple of examples of genetic diseases that you know we may be familiar with and describe what is a typical impact on children and families? Yes, some of the ones that people may be more familiar with include cystic fibrosis, and cystic fibrosis is a relatively common, although it's still a rare disease, because one in 22 individuals carry the cystic fibrosis mutation. Um, So it's a recessive disease. There's a risk of that one in four children of a couple where both parents carry the mutation, then ending up with the disease. So because of this relatively common carrier frequency in the normal population, those carriers are healthy Uh, Cystic fibrosis is one of the more common rare diseases. Other rare diseases in the neuromuscular field include Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and that was actually the first gene that was mapped by positional cloning, where we knew that the gene had to be on the X chromosome because only men or typically men are affected, boys and men are affected, and was the first disease gene to identify, be identified through knowing where it was going to be on the genome, Um, and that was in 1987. And so since then, over 500 Uh, genes have now been associated with neuromuscular and neurogenetic diseases. So there's been this massive explosion in our understanding of the genes involved in these conditions. So it's a pretty important area to be studying. You know, many different types of rare disease. The impact on life is great, particularly young children that either don't make it or or, or have a very poor quality of life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it's unknown. So I suppose the upside here is is huge, which is why you're in this area. So how are we progressing? You know, what's the current state of play of research or treatment in the areas of these types of neuromuscular diseases? Yes, as I mentioned, we now know of over 500 different disease genes for the diseases that I'm particularly interested in. But even after diagnostic sequencing, so if a family comes into a neurology clinic or a paediatric clinic and they get sent for sort of diagnostic testing and they test that patient or family for every gene we know about that causes disease, only about one in two of those patients will get a genetic diagnosis. So more than 50% of the patients are still missing a genetic diagnosis even after we screen for everything we know kind of in the diagnostic setting. And that's when those families will then get recruited into research testing. So there's still many additional disease genes to identify and classes of variants to identify. So in the past, we and others have really focused on the coding regions of the genome, the exons that make proteins. But we know that there's many variations across the non-coding genome, which makes up, you know, 98% of our genome that are going to be pathogenic. And so a lot of work in the research sphere is now to actually work out what those non-coding regions in there and variants within that dark genome, because we don't know how to interpret it yet, how they might be causing disease. So there's ongoing efforts to be able to better identify and then interpret those variants. There's also work to better understand what we call variants of unknown significance. So many patients probably have mutations in genes we know about already, but we don't have enough information about how that precise change 
might cause disease. And so we can't definitively say that that gene is pathogenic. And so many groups around the world are setting up to do saturational mutagenesis where they'll make every possible mutation in a given gene and then work out which of those thousands of changes are going to be pathogenic and which ones aren't. So that when a lab somewhere in the world identifies a variant in a patient, they can better say whether that variant is causative of disease or whether it's just a benign polymorphism. So we all have thousands of variants in our genome and many of them will be unique to us. And we don't know which of those are going to be pathogenic or not necessarily. So there's a lot of work to do to sort all of that out. And then in the treatment space, I recently returned from a conference um, in the US and 10 or so years ago when I was going to these conferences, there wasn't much in the way of treatments, but there's now a whole heap of pharmaceutical companies in the industry. There's a clinical trials for a range of neuromuscular diseases that are ongoing and there's now FDA approved gene therapies for Duchenne muscular dystrophy and spinal muscular atrophy, another one of these very severe um, neuromuscular diseases in children. And the therapy for DMD that's approved is the first FDA approved drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, the most common muscular dystrophy in children, was actually developed here in Perth by Professor Steve Wilton and Sue Fletcher. So Perth has a really strong history of excellence in, in neuromuscular disease research that perhaps people across Australia may not be aware of. So it sounds like needle in a haystack stuff, but I suppose it's a bit more targeted, you know, even though there's 20,000 genes or 3 billion variants or something, I won't have those numbers right, but there must be a process that's more than needle in a haystack. And and Mm -hmm. when you do find the gene, which is an amazing thing, and I know you've done that, what can you do with that? Screening or can you fix the gene? Yeah, so usually we start with, we used to do exome sequencing where we sequence the coding region of the genome. Now we just go straight to whole genome sequencing and you know, the first whole genome sequence was the Human Genome Project and cost billions of dollars and took a really long time and hundreds of scientists working on that. But we can now do a whole genome in a family or a patient in a couple of days and have the data to analyse. So we're doing that, you know, sending off 100 patient samples every couple of months. So the pace of discovery and the pace at which the sequencing costs have come down to enable that has been staggering. And then you talk about finding needles in a haystack. Some people have said it's like finding needles in a pile of needles um, because you're looking for a variant, one variant if it's a dominant disease or two variants if it's a recessive disease out of thousands. But we have lots of tools available to us to be able to filter down that list so that we end up with a manageable list of variants. And that's why having these large families is so important because it can help us with that filtering process and honing on, you know, a handful of variants or genes that we think might be causative. And then we work with people around the world who are also interested in rare diseases. So there's lots of other groups like ours who are working on other families and and we contact them all the time. So there's these um, matchmaking platforms where sort of like uh, eHarmony for geneticists, where we put in our gene of interest and the clinical features in the family and we get an email saying you've been matched with this group in Paris or this group in London or this group in Japan and we email them and many times they also have a patient or a family with the same disease and variants in that same gene and that's part of the validation is how do you know that that gene is causative of that phenotype is to then identify it in someone unrelated who has the same disease so it sort of supports the original discovery. 
And then we'll do assays in the lab to sort of validate, depending on what the gene or the protein it encodes does, develop assays in the lab to actually prove that that variant is pathogenic, that it's changing something in the way that that gene and protein behaves uh, to cause disease. Now, you, there have been successes and there have been, you know, breakthroughs. And I understand you were part of the global team involved in identifying the genetic mutation that caused you know, a late onset muscle weakening disease called, and I'll get this right, myoglobinopathy. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us what myoglobinopathy is you know, and how did the team find the responsible gene? Yeah, so this started with, we have a really long standing collaboration with some really wonderful neurologists and pathologists in Spain. And um, this particular pathologist uh, and neurologist in Spain, Monse Olive, she is in this unique position where she actually sees patients and she also studies the muscle biopsy, whereas often someone is either a neurologist or a pathologist. So she gets to see the patients at two levels, one sitting at her desk in the clinic and one looking at their muscle down the microscope. And she'd seen this patient with this unusual sort of clinical presentation. They had this sort of adult onset muscle weakness. They also had the, their heart muscle was also affected, the heart's muscle. And um, she looked down the microscope and saw these really unusual inclusions in the muscle she'd never seen before. And, and often when you're doing pathology, you have to stain the tissue to be able to see the features. But she could see these aggregates even in unstained muscle. Anyway, fast forward 10 years and she then sees another patient comes to her clinic, same clinical presentation, and she looks down the microscope and sees these same aggregates. And the only time she'd ever seen them before was 10 years prior. So she said they have to have the same disease. And this is where sort of um, really good phenotyping or really good characterization of the disease can be really important. So Monse then sent us DNA from these two families and we did the exome sequencing And these two unrelated patients had the exact same mutation in this gene, myoglobin. And myoglobin is the gene that produces a protein in muscle that helps the muscle uh, bind oxygen. And so that's the protein that gives muscle its red colour. And it's these aggregates of myoglobin and the iron that it binds to that that could be seen down the microscope. And then Monse, um, we reached out to our colleagues in, in Europe who were also pathologists and they had other cases with this particular pathology and sent us DNA for those cases. And all we, I think we ended up with about eight unrelated patients through families through Europe, all with the same really striking, you know, presentation and the exact same mutation in the myoglobin gene. All the families were unrelated. And we, we showed through genetic studies that it wasn't just a founder mutation that had arisen hundreds of years ago and that these patients hadn't all originated from some common ancestor, that this same mutation had arisen independently in these families. And since our study, groups in uh, South America and in Japan have found the exact same mutation in their population. So it's incredible how one change of one amino acid in this particular protein causes such a striking muscle disease. And it'd be really interesting to see in future if, if other mutations in that gene also cause disease or whether there's something really unique about that particular position in that particular gene. We don't know yet. That's amazing. It's a good thing she didn't lose the file from 10 years ago. <laughs> and she and she remembered. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that is unbelievable and a great example of this is a global journey that you're on and rare diseases by definition are rare. So, you know, the research you do often does involve studying large number of cases across the world. 
So collaboration, as you've sort of just described, is necessary. Mm-hmm. So um, you've talked a bit about it, but is there another example of how researchers work, you know, across the world in this collaborative way? Yeah, so probably one of my favourite examples was when we identified in a new gene for nemolymopathy. So nema is the Greek word for rod or thread-like, and this is a disease that's characterised by these rod or thread-like inclusions in the muscle biopsy. And we had a, a baby here in the NICU in Perth with this very severe form of congenital myopathy. So congenital myopathy just means muscle disease present at birth. And he unfortunately passed away when he was five days old. But at the same time that this little baby was in NICU, we received samples from two siblings in Turkey who also had this very severe form of nemaline myopathy. They'd also passed away. And so these particular aggregates looked a little bit different in these two um, families compared to other forms of nemaline myopathy. And we thought, well, maybe this is a different type of nemaline myopathy. And it just happened that as these samples came in, we were gearing up to do this next generation sequencing in Perth. So we had the machine and the prices had come down that we could actually afford to, to now do sort of genome-wide sequencing in rare disease patients. And we sent these samples off. So these three DNA from these three babies were one of the very first runs of the sequencing facility here in Perth. And we got the data back and the West Australian baby had two different mutations in this gene, or 40 And both the Turkish sibs, so the, the Turkish um, siblings were from a consanguineous family. So the parents were related And so both these siblings had a different mutation in this same gene that we identified in the Perth baby, and that was homozygous. So they had two copies of the same mutation because the parents are related. Each parent had the same variant. So we now have three different mutations in this gene and these two families. And very quickly, we contacted our nemolymopathy family around the world who'd been collecting these nemolymopathy cases. And between a group in Sydney and Finland and Japan and Boston, we quickly sequenced around 150 families for this particular gene. And we ended up with 28 families, 20 different mutations in this gene in patients with this really severe form of nemolymopathy. And one of the really uh, rewarding aspects is that a family that had been reported in the literature in 1998, they'd lost five of their seven children within an hour of birth. They had a mutation in this gene. So it was almost 20 years until we found the gene that had caused that heartache in that family. So to finally have answers for them and for all the other families. Um, And we also identified our Japanese collaborators, identified that a variant in the Japanese population had quite a high carrier frequency. So there were 10 or 15 Japanese families all with the same mutation. And because Japan's an island, they have these founder effects. And so one in 500 people in Japan carry this particular mutation and at the time we um, made the discovery you know you go to the literature try and see what the gene does is it expressed in muscle you know does is this a good candidate Uh, we went to PubMed which is where we go to look up the scientific literature typed in the gene and we got zero entries returned so there was absolutely nothing known about this particular gene and protein when we identified it and we then also collaborated with um Professor Rob Bryson Richardson at Monash, who makes zebrafish models, and he made a zebrafish model uh, where he knocked out this gene and basically showed that the fish uh, had a very severe myopathic phenotype. So the fish basically didn't swim. So it's really easy to study muscle diseases in fish because 
um, yeah, you can you can assess their movement with just really simple swimming assays. And so that really proved to us that this gene was really critical to muscle function and muscle development. It is wonderful that people are working together on these things to, um, you know, help humanity more, more broadly. Yeah, I think, and also I've been really kind of struck every time we find a candidate, you know, you go to the literature and you might find someone who's the world expert on that particular gene. They may have been studying it for 20 years and I'm I guess it's not so surprising, but initially I was struck by how kind of willing and keen people are to help and to contribute. And I guess if you've been studying a particular gene or protein for 20 years and suddenly someone says to you, we have a human model of the gene that you've been studying, you know, your entire career is based on, I think from their point of view, they're also really, you know, interested and and keen to help and contribute and it sort of comes full, full circle to end up with the human model of, of diseases and, and genes and proteins that people have dedicated their lives to. Oh, that's really cool. And I suppose once you find the gene, you can screen for it or hopefully, you know, get a cure. But you were also involved in Mackenzie's mission and Mackenzie's mm-hmm. mission looked at the potential for establishing free reproductive genetic screening for all couples in Australia. So give us a bit of background about Mackenzie's mission and, you know, what's the latest on the availability of genetic screening for these severe conditions? Yeah, so Mackenzie's mission was a research project named after baby um, Mackenzie, who died from spinal muscular atrophy, and her parents, Rachel and Johnny Casella, really advocated really strongly for reproductive carrier screening. So can we identify individuals that carry mutations that cause recessive disease in children before they have an affected child? should have been possible to tell Rachel and Johnny that they were carriers of SMA before baby Mackenzie was born. And so this carrier screening project um, that was co-led from Perth and Melbourne and Sydney screened over 9,000 couples for around 1,300 recessive conditions in children. Uh, So that was a huge feat to screen so many couples. And most of the project happened during COVID. So it ran during COVID to recruit all those couples and then for the labs to screen all of those couples um, on gene panels or with exomes for variants in those genes and report them back. And we were quite surprised that around one in 50 couples is actually at risk of having a child with one of these rare, severe conditions of childhood. So it's pretty high if you think about it. You know, we all probably have 50 friends. You know, one of those couples could be a carrier for one of these conditions. And the great thing about screening is that they can know before they start a family and decide if they want to have IVF or prenatal genetic diagnosis. So that's what Mackenzie's mission is about. And currently, as of the 1st of November, a three-gene test, so for the three most common of those diseases, cystic fibrosis, which I've mentioned already, fragile X, and SMA will be offered to Australian couples and will be Medicare rebated. So everyone should have access to that and it won't cost them anything. So at least those three common diseases will be covered from the 1st of November. In the meantime, the government and researchers and clinicians and patient advocate groups are all working together to work out how we can bring this expanded carrier screening program to Australians. That'll take a bit more time. And we still think that's really important to do because even though the three common ones are covered, actually 80% of the couples that Mackenzie's mission detected has been at risk of having a child with one of these conditions didn't have 
mutations in one of those three most common genes. So collectively, the other thousand or so conditions, you know, make up 80% of those at-risk couples. So it's really important that we still work towards expanded carrier screening as well. Yeah, it seems like a you know a no-brainer if it affects one in fifty, and the you know the impact on you know the child, the family, the health system, the the broader economy, and with the cost of genetic screening coming down, then this is something we should be doing. Yeah, and and we do it for Down syndrome already, and and that's around one in eight hundred, I think. So collectively, this is much more common than Down syndrome. Now, one of the research programs that are being funded by Hearts and Minds, which we're excited about, is a severe muscle disease in babies called ACTA1, mm-hmm. for which, you know, again, there's no cure. So tell us about the possibilities for this research. The ACTA1 gene encodes the skeletal muscle actin protein. And this protein, along with mycin in our muscle, are the two key proteins involved in muscle contraction. So this actin gene and protein is really critical to muscle function. And it was in 1998 that the group here in Perth showed for the first time that mutations in actin cause congenital myopathy. And 50% of patients with an actin mutation won't reach their first birthday. So this is one of those very severe diseases as well. It's a dominant, mostly dominant disease. So typically parents don't pass that on to their children. It arises de novo in that baby. And so you can't screen for it really. And so our lab and with funding through Hearts and Minds is focused on trying to develop therapies for actin-based disease. So we're looking at CRISPR gene editing to delete or to correct the mutations in, in the actin gene. We're also using ASO technologies, which is what is being used for spinal muscular atrophy and which is approved to delete the copy of the actin gene that contains the mutation. So we know from the few patients with recessive disease where their parents carry uh, one defective copy of the gene, that having just one functional copy of the gene is good enough. But in dominant disease, it's having this presence of the mutation that causes disease. So if we can delete that allele, that copy of the gene with the mutation and just leave one intact copy of the gene, we think that will be therapeutically viable. And so we're really excited to explore these different um, potentials using patient cell lines that we're banking from patients with these actin mutations and also in animal models that we're developing as well. Mm. We're excited as well. (laughs) Funding, though, all this wonderful work and opportunity requires funding and funding's always hard to come by. Is funding for, you know, rare disease, is it harder than, you know, some of the big disease groups? Yeah, I think... um well, in our experience recently, you know, fun, well, funding in Australia is really hard overall. I think, you know, a lot of our overseas colleagues are really surprised at just how competitive the funding situation is in Australia and that many of our really stellar researchers, people with Orders of Australia, for example, don't have a permanent position, that they're reliant on grant funding and getting their next fellowship to keep their jobs, whereas most of our colleagues overseas have a permanent position. And so that takes some of the stress and uncertainty out of the mix for colleagues overseas that we don't have here. We've been relatively successful with getting funding for for the genetic side of things, for the diagnostic side of things. There's a really golden age in, in genomics and we can see the benefits of genetic screening and testing. So funding from for that side of thing has been reasonably good for us, especially with the MRFF having this 
Genomics Health Futures Mission Fund, but getting funding for um, more basic science to explore therapies, especially for rare diseases, is really difficult. And that work takes time. You can't, you know, the impacts aren't immediate and it's difficult to get the publications in a timely manner for some of this more longer term work in looking at therapies for diseases. And so that's where support from philanthropists and, and hearts and minds is really important because it gives us some security around that aspect of our work that we just couldn't fund any other way. Well, you are, you know, you're putting Western Australia on the map. So I know you have some big mining magnates over there that <laughs> that do give a lot. Maybe they can just give a little bit more. That would be wonderful. Mm. <laughs> you also, you know, you're not only making a mark for yourself, but you have an interest in, in developing researchers into the area and particularly young and mid-career researchers. How hard is it to start out and sustain? It obviously relates to the funding question as well, but how hard is it to sustain a career in medical research when you're just starting out? Yeah, so as a you know mid-career researcher now, I'm really passionate about supporting other early and mid-career researchers. I have benefited from extraordinary mentorship with, with Nigel Lang. And, you know, in general, it's possible to get funding when you're quite junior. So to get a year or two's funding straight out of your PhD is perhaps not so competitive or less competitive. But then we often talk of this valley of death that, sort of a few years out from your PhD all the way till you're about 50. It can be really hard to get funding, this kind of state. And this is a stage of life where people are having kids and wanting to buy houses and things. So to have this real instability at that time of your life is really difficult. And there's data from the NHMRC, for example, that I think the average age at which someone gets their first sort of big project grant as CIA as the main investigator is 48. So if you have to wait until you're 48 to have, you know, and, and then that's funding for three to five years. So it's really hard. And that's why I'm really passionate about trying to encourage funding bodies and, and philanthropists and, and whoever will listen that we need to better support early and mid-career researchers so that we don't lose the next generation of research leaders, the incredible directors of institutes and professors and people with orders of Australia, they're going to retire and we need to make sure we have really smart, dedicated people coming through the pipeline to take over and keep our country clever. And, you know, and, and you're a great example of that, you know, you've, you've already achieved a lot, you know, you've won lots of awards, you know, how do you feel? You must feel proud. Oh, yeah, I guess I am. But uh, but I don't know, science is really a, a team. You know, sometimes I wish some of the awards and prizes were more team-based, right? The best research group rather than the best individual because really, as we've talked about today, much of research is so highly collaborative and so it's not just down to one person. There's massive teams of people that work together to make these discoveries. And so while I'm really proud, I'm also really proud of the team and the incredible colleagues that I get to work with. And I feel very privileged to be able to do the work that I get to do and to collaborate with wonderful, smart, kind people across Australia and around the world. And at the end of the day, we're all working to improve the lives of patients and families affected by these rare diseases. No, it's, it's wonderful what you do. So apart from you know, saving humanity. What do you do outside of work? How do you turn your mind off from genetics and so on? Yes, yeah, so I have a, a wonderful husband at home and we have two small children. We've got a 
son who's nine and a daughter who's five and they keep us busy and make sure I switch off because then I'm very happy if mummy's working all the time. I really love cooking and hosting dinner parties and traveling as well. So another great thing about science is being able to go to conferences and travel and we take the kids with when we can and, and you know, really enjoy some downtime and, and seeing other parts of the world and different cultures. And cooking obviously involves experimenting in the kitchen as well. Exactly. Yes. We always um, get new people that want to join the lab to make a cake because we reckon if someone can make a good cake, they'll probably be able to follow a protocol in the lab too. Mm, no, that's excellent. I really enjoyed our chat and finding out what you do. It, it, it's extraordinary that, um, you know, the fact there's people around the world like you working together to find you know, the genetic causes for these pretty severe and awful diseases that affect, you know, babies and young children. So uh, I admire what you're doing and thanks for chatting to us. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Paul. And that concludes another fascinating conversation. Today we were joined by Associate Professor Gina Ravenscroft to discuss her research into rare genetic diseases. A big thank you to Gina for her time today. I certainly learned a lot and I hope you did too. Gina Ravencross Laboratory at the Perkins is a nominated beneficiary of HM1 Core Fund Manager Magellan Asset Management. Thank you for listening to us today. We will be back next week with another episode. To ensure you never miss a conversation, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. And better yet, send it on to a friend or a colleague you think will enjoy the conversation. Your support is appreciated. Until next time, stay curious. This is a Hearts and Minds podcast in partnership with Equitymates Media. This communication has been prepared by Hearts and Minds Investment Limited, ABN 61 628 753 220. In preparing this publication, the investment objectives, financial situation or particular needs of an individual have not been considered. You should not rely on the opinions, advice, recommendations and other information contained in this publication alone. The inclusion of third-party content does not in any way imply any form of endorsement by HM1 of the products or services provided by persons or organisations who are responsible for the third-party content. This publication has been prepared to provide you with general information only. It is not intended to take the place of professional advice and you should not take action on specific issues in reliance on this information. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.